Now, one thing I wanted to just talk to you briefly for those who just came in. Uh, to, to our surprise, uh, they have changed the questions on the exam. So, uh, but our understanding is that uh, the questions that you have will be accepted until next October at the annual meeting. And so my suggestion to you would be to get your questions in as soon as possible and no later than the end of September. I'll be in contact with ACBC um, this week about that. I had talked to them and they had talked to us at the National Conference in California just two weeks ago and those questions weren't supposed to go public until next October. But uh, to all our surprise, they popped up on the website uh, this week. So don't let that uh, uh, throw you. We'll work through it together. So these uh, will be good. Now, another thing is I just want to talk about. Uh, I, I looked at the website. It says until October 31st. Does it actually state it? Hey, Eric, that is good news. Thank you. All right. So it states it. Very good. All right. Thank you. And uh, all right. Um, now, the information that I've given you as notes, these are a help. Do not feel that you have to lay it out the way I laid it out or have everything in there that I have. Do not. Do not feel bound at all. You answer the question as you feel led. Those, th that what's written there is only to be a help to you, more of a catalyst. What are they asking about? What, what's this question about? Oh, and so there's some ideas put down there just to get you going. You might take a much, much better approach. And uh, the best approach is to take your approach that truly fully answers the question. So, yes? How should we quote it? If we take uh, like something that you define and we write it in our notes or in our, how we answer it, do we, is it okay to cite it? You, yes, you can. Right. If it's a, if it's a, you know, a definition or something like that and, a, and I haven't given it that's came from anywhere, then, then you can do that. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, I have never, I never had original idea in my life. So everything I borrowed from somebody else. So uh, I can't think of one that you feel free to quote it. But you know, I'm certainly not going to come after you for plagiarism, so or anything like that. So yes, yeah, I'm in good standing with them. So yeah, we're fine. Yeah, that'll work. Yes. Okay. How important is that? Okay. Uh, they're not, you know, they're, they're not going to hold you as if this person is, is grading as an English professor. In fact, uh, if your grammar is poor, they probably won't say anything. But it certainly will leave a bad taste in their mouth. So uh, you don't have to make sure that you've got everything just absolutely uh, perfect and and so, but I would work on it, you know, as best you can. But I don't know. I don't know if it's still a rule. Is it, uh, Roger? You would know. Are you allowed to end a sentence with a preposition? If you want to. Okay. All right. <laughs> when I when I when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I, there was a rule you could not end a sentence with a with a preposition. And so I always wanted to end these sentences with preposition. So I've gotten better, but still I do it. And uh, so. <laughs> so, uh, if you end, you know, things like that, they're not going to make a big deal about <clears throat> So, good. Uh, and, you know, your, your references doesn't have to be according to some collegiate style that you've got everything perfect. So, when you make a reference, uh, make it near where you've making, made the quote and make it similar to the way you've seen myself do it. Is, in your style that is reasonable, someone can understand, 
you know, what book you got it from, who was the author, and what was the page, okay? And have to get into all kinds of specific, uh, uh, and just sort of follow through a, uh, a st you start one way, just keep that way through the rest of the paper, make it easy for your grader to have a, a sense of what you're doing. So, yeah, so please. Uh, as I said, my notes are just uh, a guide, and uh, you make it as you feel uh, free. Okay, well, um, I love doing the theology with you, and I'm going to love doing this with you also. Now, getting into the, the counseling, uh, and the theology is the foundation of what we're going to do here. And so this is more of the, actually, the practical side. So why don't you just, we'll get rolling here, we'll just go right to the first First question, so what are the goals of biblical counseling? All right, what am I going to write here? So like I said, these notes here are just to get us going and get us thinking. And so actually I make a statement under A, the goal of biblical counseling has been stated differently in different authoritative works in this field uh, by varying authors. So let's look at a few of those uh, so we can come up with our own statement. So there was one that was written by uh, Jay Adams, and I say initially by Adams, and he did it in Competent Counsel, because Competent Counsel, remember, as you read that book, these are rough, uh, this book has, uh, these are actually rough notes that Jay Adams just sort of put in a book form from a cl some classes he was starting to teach at Westminster Theological Seminary in the late 60s. Nobody was thinking this way. <clears throat> and uh, he actually went, <coughs> excuse me, uh, I, I split a cookie with David at dinner time, and I should have given him the whole thing instead of eating part of it. So I always have a nut caught in there. <coughs> so he wrote down these notes of what he was teaching, and uh, uh, that's the way they came. So they're, they're going to be a, a little rough. So he stated, the goal of our authoritative instruction is love. In other words, the authoritative instruction is biblical counseling. He's going back to uh, that verse, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, where we said, you know, our goal is through admonishing with love and wisdom all believers so they'll be mature. So that authoritative instruction. And so that's what he's talking about. So there it states the goal is love. Okay? And then at another time, later on, Adam says this, biblical change is the goal of counseling. All right, so one says love, then later he writes, all right, uh, he writes biblical change. Well, they sound uh, different. And then there's another book, uh, and in here it was Wayne Mack who wrote the chapter. Wayne Mack is an older gentleman, must be in his 80s, maybe he's even, even near 90 uh, now. He's it's, it's it's an unbelievable person at the... Uh, a teacher, a, uh, a teacher, a, uh, a professor, a pastor, counselor, wrote a lot of the beginning things in counseling. And uh, uh, he, when he retired, he didn't uh, just sit back and do nothing. He moved to uh, uh, South Africa you know, so as to be able to help the people there and the area of biblical counseling. So that's where he, he lives now. And uh, so uh, Wayne Mack says that the goal of biblical counseling is to help counselees become more like Jesus Christ. So we've got one that says love. Another one says uh, is to change. Another one, the next one says biblical counseling is to become more like Christ. Now this last quote, I want to show you the book that that came out of. That's this book here. Uh, we have it in the uh, Resource Center. And uh, so this is a very, very helpful book. It's the one called Counseling, How to Counsel Biblically by John MacArthur. And then the Master's College faculty. So yes, he wrote some chapters, uh, but a lot of the faculty wrote chapters. This is an excellent book to help you as you work through uh, the answers on the exam. And uh, we have it in the... Uh, uh, the resource center there. So feel free to go, go down there and, and see. Well, you 
during our first break, I went down there and uh, they had like four workers just waiting around and only two people came. They were, they were just excited for you to break open the doors and come in there. So when you get a chance, go in and see what they've uh, uh, got and it be anything to be helpful to you. But being a good steward, I don't want you to buy a single thing you do not need. So, uh, good. So, uh, as B says, their peers are saying different things. Let's try and put them uh, all together. So, the definition states that the goal is love, biblical change, growth in Christ's likeness. These are basically the same. God, through Scripture, continually presses us to change, to be more loving, like our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. So you see how you can, it's like a, looking at a, a gem, looking at a diamond. There's different facets, and diff, but uh, putting it all together. So you could state the goal of biblical counseling is to help the counselee change to be more loving like Christ. All right. So uh, from Scripture, where, where might we get uh, this idea? Uh, Jesus taught and modeled a love. I have lots of examples there. Uh, in number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with your entire mind. Basically, he's, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, you know, the Lord God is one. That goes on and makes this, this statement here. Uh, then we looked at this uh, uh, earlier about to John 13, 34 and 35. I love off the reference. Sorry about that. A new command I give you, love one another. It's John 13, verses 34 and 35. And this is so key. Uh, you know, uh, how do you know you're a disciple? Not because I walk down the aisle, not because I'm a member of such and such church, not because every Friday I serve at this ministry. We know that we are disciples because we love others in a sacrificial way because of what Christ has done for us. So, real disciples of him be known to all people by their loving attitude and actions to others. Uh, Paul stated the importance of love. He stated a little bit differently, but really pressed it. Looking at number the first quote there from Galatians 5, those three verses of 13, 14, and 15. He says, uh, you know, do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Then Paul also wrote in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, the only thing that counts, whenever you see phrases like that, the only thing that counts, I mean, that, that's what they mean, the only thing that counts, I mean, it really uh, pops it up to the top as important. Uh, the only thing you count is faith expressing itself in love. And then uh, turning over, uh, at least in my notes, in number three, 1 Peter 4.8. Here now Peter is speaking. He says, above all else. That also puts it right to the, the top. Love each other deeply because love cover over, covers over a multitude of sins. So, to be a disciple of Jesus is to be one growing in the kind of love Jesus demonstrated toward his Father and to us. So, the role of biblical counseling is to help us change to be more loving as Jesus was. Basically, that's the standard of, of godliness. Now, as we all know, uh, change is a difficult all right, so uh, for all of us, and takes effort. And there's a reference to 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So we have to uh, work at this. This is very difficult. And so you are really a mentor, you're a, a trainer, you're a helper of someone to grow to be more loving uh, like Christ. So this is a place where biblical counseling assists as a personal ministering of the Word of God. So now the Word of God comes into the picture of biblical counseling to 
help this person train and grow. So, you know, circle that word of God. This is, this is, this is the key tool that you use. It's not your, not your cleverness, not your uh, high level of common sense that you've been given, but it is the word of God. So, looking at John 17, 17, it says there, sanctify them by the truth. Sanctify, make them holy. They became holy because of the Word of God, and they're growing in holiness as that Word of God works on their life. The Word is, is truth. Then we certainly know Second uh, Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's God-breathed, and it's useful. Useful for the, the teaching, the rebuking, training in a righteousness, so that all of us as believers, all of us that are part of the church, we may be equipped for every good work that we need in life, every good work we need to love others. So there it says, biblical counseling is where one believer ministers to another believer, the Word of God, in order to change them both to, a more, to be more loving as Jesus was. And I say both. Uh, the privilege of my wife and I are working with a couple uh, now, and it's just been uh, great. Uh, some of the issues that they've uh, been wrestling with, it's been great opening up the Word of God uh, and reading it to them and working back and forth together. And it's been uh, just, I've been very thankful to see that Word of God working in my, my own life as I minister it uh, to them. So I'm always thankful uh, for those opportunities. Last here, under this question, is a uh, definition of uh, biblical counseling from the first fellow that uh, taught me about uh, biblical counseling now about, I first got involved in about 14 years ago, Wayne, Wayne Vanderweer. He has, he has a counseling ministry now that's international, basically uh, does what we're doing here with uh, fundamentals of biblical counseling. He does it uh, all over the world, has a biblical counseling center that in uh, Lebanon, uh, does a lot in the Middle East, Lebanon, Egypt, uh, so forth. Some of it uh, done underground. And I remember sitting in that class and he gave us this definition. Biblical counseling is the action or process whereby a concerned believer lovingly confronts and scripturally instructs another believer for the sole purpose of effecting God-glorifying change. And we saw what that God-glorifying change was earlier as we thought about this question, that this person will be growing to be more like Christ. The aspect of being more like Christ, not that you're going to be a savior to anybody, that's not our role. Jesus did that aspect that we are, is that in the sphere that the Lord has placed us, we will be loving and help that person be loving in the circumstances that they're in. Good, so I get you going. On that one, uh, let's uh, roll into the next one here. And this is a, a key one of the, the sufficiency of Scripture. One that uh, <clears throat> is uh, regularly talked about. In fact, there's an organization, Biblical uh, Counseling Coalition. Um, they write... Uh, they're a major writer now of, of books on this movement of biblical counseling. Uh, I would highly suggest to you that you sign up for their, their blog and have it delivered to your email. You know, if you don't have time, don't read it that day. But have it delivered regularly and uh, uh, read it as often as you can. They're great people. And so the, they write books. The second book that they wrote was on this whole aspect of the sufficiency of biblical counseling. So, um, the bottom line to this question is, I've written my answer, but you need to write not what I say, but you need to write what you understand and what you believe in your words and how you understand it with the nuances. So, I wrote something like this, Scripture is sufficient for helping people with their problems. Now, uh, this is a key that the Word of God is the 
uh, major instrument tool uh, that's, that's used. Now I say major tool that's used. Well, certainly major is the, the spirit working on a person's heart. Us also working, but it, that, that tool that's used is the word, word of God. And it's foundational that the scriptures have the answers that we need uh, with our problems. Now, what we need to do when you do your answer, circle that word problems. Uh, and you may even want to fill in something from the beginning different than problems. You're going to need to explain what the problems are. A person comes with a broken arm. Uh, he, 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 there are things that you might minister to calm them down from the Word of God, but you're, that's not going to be the only thing, sufficient thing to solve that problem. So he, here's a list of some problems. Basically, these are problems of the, of the soul. These are problems of where we've turned from God to other things for refuge, where we've turned from God for other things for ultimate delight, where we've turned for uh, God to uh, handle when we are uh, worried. So uh, this deals with personal conflicts, deals with depression, uh, unrighteous anger, uh, inappropriate unbiblical communication, uh, uh, not loving God properly or unbelief, uh, you know, being shallow in our love of others, uh, and godly sexual communication, uh, being uh, uh, selfish there in that area, and uh, putting off manifestations of pride and putting on uh, humility. That's uh, that's a key. Also, you can write there, you know, there are different addictions out there that come our way. Addictions of, of drugs, of, of food, uh, addiction of uh, uh, sex. Those types of things are problems of the, of the soul and where biblical counseling and the word of God is uh, sufficient to help there. Now, in this, the... Uh, God's role, God enlightens us to solutions to people's problems through his sufficient word. So the Holy Spirit is not just working in that person to change him. The Holy Spirit is working in you as the counselor to have understanding and insight into what, what's going on here. What, what are the, what's the issues that this person is, is struggling with? What's their real problem? What's what is the, their sin? And then uh, guiding you to uh, a portion of Scripture to be able to share and minister to that, that person. Uh, that's, that's an aspect of God's role. Also, there's the, the Christian role. That's us. Uh, since lasting solutions to our problems are found through the Word of God, saturate ourselves with the Word of God. And what we want to do when we're counseling we want to also saturate that person with the Word of God. Now, when I say that, um, saturating a person with the Word of God, uh, sometimes when we're ministering the Word, we think, all right, I want to saturate this person with the Word of God. So if one verse is good, I've got 20 verses that will help this person. Don't do that. You know, hang in there with just a few verses or a portion of Scripture and make sure that is clearly presented to them what it means. They clearly understand uh, what it means and that they are able to make application to their own life. As opposed to saturating from Genesis to Revelation of just dumping all these verses on them, saturate them by a deep understanding of a portion of Scripture that addresses the need that, that they have, have there. Hey, we're not unloading a dump truck on them. We're trying to uh, feed them and nourish them. So, Now remember, solutions require from us cooperation with his, with his word. We must uh, recognize our own sinfulness and help the counselee do that. We'll actually talk about that in the very next question. And uh, what we want to do is help our counselee exercise a godly uh, repentance. 
because let me give you, uh, I might have given it to you before, but, and I'll give it to you again. It's very, very important to have a handle on what uh, repentance is. And uh, re godly repentance, biblical repentance, is a radical change in the heart that is reflected in the radical change of one's behavior. And uh, you can give that credit to Paul Tripp and uh, uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand is the book that it comes from. And I think he first states it on page three or five. You know, if you leave the page off, you know, they'll know you, where you got it. Okay, so uh, a, a radical change in the heart that is reflected in a radical change in behavior. So repentance is not primarily a change in behavior. It's primarily a change in the heart. Now to get to the heart, you might do some things in behavior, but you don't want to, you're not just working on behaviorism here. You're working on having that impact the heart, person to see. So that's what we need. And here are three ingredients, and we'll talk more about these later. For repentance to happen deep in the heart, that there must be a godly sorrow. The person must have a godly confession. And uh, since it's uh, written there, godly confession, uh, this means that it, uh, when they speak and ask for forgiveness, they're uh, uh, speaking that impacts the mind, impacts the emotions, and impacts the will. So if you want to read, a, uh, there's a BCC blog this week uh, on that, on what uh, godly confession is. And uh, I forget whether it's Tuesday or Wednesday. And uh, there's a blog that I, I wrote. And uh, so you, you go on there, you can, can read that and uh, get more on what a godly confession is. And then also reflected in godly living. So solutions to our basic human problems are not to be found in building up a person's self-love or self-esteem. Now, Jimmy, <clears throat> we might even chuckle about that, but that's where a lot of counseling is and even people who classify them as, as Christian counselors. Uh, so uh, that's not an area uh, we're focusing on. So in summary, that the scriptures are sufficient for emotional and spiritual health and comes from God alone. For this health, he's decided to use himself, his word in our lives, and usually other believers, the community of faith, doing this type of counseling, this type of intensive uh, discipleship. All right. Now, this next part here, basically, uh, I've just given some references from people who have written on this for your interest. You can look these up. And you can see there's a reference there. Um, the first one uh, from uh, John MacArthur's book, and he says, the scripture offers sufficient help for all the deepest needs of the human heart. That's great that John MacArthur says that. I think he's right. But most importantly is, is that what the scriptures say? And he, he here's a quote from 2 Corinthians uh, 9.8. And it's just really cool how you can see, and as you read this quote here, underline or circle every time you see the word all and every. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things and in all times, having all you need, you can abound in every good work promise for, for us. And another one uh, here, all Christians possess ample spiritual means for genuine victory. That spiritual means are the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and other believers coming alongside to help our intentional discipleship. God graciously provides the resources that each of us needs to live a godly life, no matter what the presenting circumstances are, may be. You know, those presenting circumstances are what God allows to come into our lives to see where we need to grow and change. So, this is a key verse here, this one in Second Peter, 
to embrace and to believe uh, that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. God has called us, and he's not going to leave us hanging. He's going to give us everything we need to be able to live a godly life. And it's going to be important for you to believe it and really believe that uh, tr truth of God's word and then through your believing uh, to transfer that to your counseling. Uh, these resources are described for us and supplied to us through God's word. Okay? And then you'll see a reference from Isaiah 55, 11. You don't have to use these verses. You may have ones that are better. And in fact, you, you may have ones, the verses that you already know that are in your mind or you'd like just to brush up on. This is a great time to brush up on verses that you know that mean something to you because you're not going to have this test sitting in front of you, but use the exam to just refine your own thinking, refine it with verses that you know and that you'll be carrying with you so that when you meet this person and need to drool on something, you know, uh, that uh, uh, you'll be able to express it, you know, to them. You know, a person will say, you know, my, my problem is just beyond help, you know. And so what, what verse will you use to answer that as opposed to just saying, oh, no, it's not. God will help you. That's true. But use the, the word of God to point that out. All right. Um, triple I, small triple I there. The word of God reveals the deepest part of a person's inner soul. And the, what's uh, referenced there is Hebrews 4.12. I, please circle that. I would uh, commit that to memory so that it will help you to have confidence in the word of God. Word of God is alive and it is active. And then this thinking about it, it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So let the word of God do its work. And you see reference, you know, you'll probably refer to 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, lots through here. Okay, now, C, since the scriptures are utterly sufficient for helping our counselee with their spiritual emotional needs. Okay. Now, my prayer for you is that you will see uh, the word do a great work in the uh, people that he's given you to work with and that you'll be able, you're working hard, remember, with all the strength that God has given you but remember, it's always the Holy Spirit using his word that you are ministering. So this is a little proverb we came up with here. And you'll hear different ones of us say it around the grace. Keep your finger on the word of God. And uh, so even as a reminder, uh, even let's say you're counseling at, uh, you know, uh, you're at Panera Bread and the counselor hasn't shown up yet. Or you've set aside uh, a room at your public library that they've let you, you borrow. We've, we have people counsel at both those, those places. Or you're at one of the classrooms at your church, or you're at your uh, kitchen table at home. Before that person arrives, come. You know, just open up Word of God, even open it and have it sitting there even before you begin. So that it reminds you, okay, this is now every time I am making a major point to my counselee, I want to have it come from the word of God. And so just a reminder, and as you make your notes and thoughts beforehand, you know, don't, you know, yes, you can tell stories about your past. That'll build in uh, involvement and empathy together. But most importantly, you know, share the word of God, unpack it for them, 
make sure they understand it, help them draw applications, see clearly what it means, use that word of God in their life. It is, it is sufficient for those aspects where the heart uh, has gone amiss. Okay? All righty. All right, number three. Now, this is real practical. What are some of the uh, important needs in the, in the first session? So, um, now remember, the uh, what, first session, I am uh, I'm, uh, terrorized in the first session. I've read this person's data, and I'm uh, starting to work through it, and I realize, uh, whoa, I have no idea you know, how to help this person. And uh, uh, so I'm praying real hard. In fact, I don't know this person. And pretty quickly, we got to get talking about some very, very personal things. You know, you can only talk about the weather and their favorite restaurant, maybe for the first 15 seconds. You know, we can talk a little bit longer than that, but we got to get into it here. Okay, so have a guideline, have a plan, and watch God uh, un, unfold uh, what he's doing here. So, remember, uh, even though you're terrorized, this person coming in is in worse shape than you. I mean, they're the one coming for this counseling, and they are in desperate, desperate need of uh, your help. So, uh, this first session is very important, okay? Extremely important to the progress and success of all counseling. Have a have a couple proverbs here. We say, "How you start is how you finish." You know, start with the end in mind. What's the end in, that you have in mind? Back to the first question that we just dealt with half an hour ago. The end in mind is this person's in this horrendous trial, uh, and they're wanting to bail from from hanging in there and loving and acting as Christ would act. So what I need to do, even from this first session, think about how can I help this person have an, have an attitude that then corresponds to actions that will help this person do hard love in this very, very difficult trial that the Lord has allowed to come into their life. Okay. Now, often by the time they come to you, uh, they will be without hope. All right? And hope is one of those churchy words we throw around. So uh, let me give you a definition. And uh, basically, it's a, uh, a co- hope is a confident expectation. A confident expectation that God will fulfill all his promises that are in his word. Now you take that and you write it as what means to you. But this person, they're not, they're, they come to you by that time, they're doubting God. So it's a confident, you can even say a confident and joyful expectation that all the promises in the word of God will come to pass. Okay. The Lord says that he's coming back. Okay. We have a confident, joyful expectation. He is definitely coming back. We know that. Okay. The Lord says that he gives us all the power that we need for us to live a godly life. We have that hope. Okay. I don't have that power right now exercising. In the future, I will. The Lord promises to be with us all the time, be our refuge and our strength. We have that hope. We have a confident, joyful expectation. As I uh, feel like I'm on the tossing ways, that he is with me and will be my anchor and my port of safety. So the person comes in, they have no hope. So 
As it says here, for all of us to keep pressing on, we need generous doses of hope throughout our lives. Paul said, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if we didn't have this hope that he would answer these promises that he's made, and they were just sort of pie-in-the-sky things stated, you know, we wouldn't continue to press on. Uh, two, usually by the time a counselee comes, as I said, their hope quotient is pretty nil. Giving a meaningful hope is so important that Jay Adams states that the process of giving hope may occupy half the time of the first session. So there, my encouragement to you would be to think about verses that give you hope when things have been dark and hard in your life. What are passages in the Word of God that the Holy Spirit has spoken to you and given you endurance to go on. Those will be passages that are much easier for you to minister as you're ministering from the depth of your feelings, your heart, and the truth of God to that person. Not necessarily ones that I say or in a book, but thinking about, okay, what keeps me uh, going? All right, so now the types of hope to give. One of them is referred to, I call it the incarnation principle. And this, this matters a lot to me. Now, it may not matter as much to you, but it matters a lot to me. Is that whatever I am going through, the Lord is with me. My, probably my, I don't know, I probably will say this a zillion times. Oh, this is my favorite verse. This is my favorite verse. The, uh, well, my favorite verse is, at the end of Psalm 28, where the psalmist says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. And the way it's written, it's hard to translate it in, in English as fully, as strongly as it is in Hebrew. But, the, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Meaning that of all the great things that happen in our lives, to have the confident expectation and knowledge that God is with me no matter what is a, by far the greatest good in my life. So often as a person comes in and they're in this trial, to help them realize that God is with them through this. Okay? And uh, have passages. Another common one that you can use for this is Revelation 3.20. You know, behold, or here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, you know, I'll come into him and uh, eat with him and he with me. A lot of times we use this as an evangelistic verse. It's not really an evangelistic verse. It's, it's written to a church. Remember what we said you know, an hour or two ago? Church is church of believers already. It's written to remind them that God is there and they've forsaken their first love. Go back to remembering that he is there. Now you've got to remember also the culture that this is written in. For us to eat together, it's not that big a deal. You might even have eaten with somebody important at one time. But in their culture, somebody that was above you in class, you did not assume you were going to get to eat with them. Remember when the three visitors came to see Abraham? And Abraham was a pretty big deal uh, by then. And these three visitors come. No, he, he and Sarah, they prepare the dinner, feed the three visitors, and Abraham does not eat with them. The Lord says in Revelation 3.20, it is different. I'm coming in with him. And in that culture, to say that God, the creator of the universe, is going to sit down and have a meal with you would, would freak out those first century believers. And so let the word of God, the spirit, Im impact us about the closeness that the Lord has. I've got a, I didn't quote it. I should have put quotes around the next one. Since God is a personal spirit, I will seek intimate fellowship with him. That's actually a quote from Bill Bright. Bill Bright, the founder of Camp's Crusade, had a few truths he always kept in his mind to keep on track. And uh, uh, I read in a book that this was, this was his, one of his personal uh, truths that he kept running through his mind so he didn't deviate uh, 
from this understanding of life. Since God is a personal spirit, I will seek intimate fellowship with him. was a, a major mover of his life. The question is, uh, the God, Jesus is saying uh, with, to us, is, do you want to be with me? So, now, another item of giving hope is God is a strong refuge, a giver of rest, and a teacher. Passage from Psalm 46, and then Matthew 11, uh, 28 and 30. You know, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Well, the person sitting across from you is wearied and burdened. They would not be sitting there if they weren't, if you rest. And so this is a great one. Take them through. Ask them, do you want God's rest? Yes. It says you can, he will give it to you. He said he will teach you in these verses. Learn how. Now you have to come under his guidance and control where it says my, my yoke is easy, but my burden is light. And talk to them. God is not going to beat you into the ground. He said he is gentle and humble in heart. He will give you rest in the midst of this chaos. So we work through it together. So whatever works for you, but from the word of a God. So now, uh, remember to gently tie their being overwhelmed by their problems to basically being the, the result of sin. Now, it's not always their sin that is caused them to be, uh, uh, you know, troubled. It could be the sin of somebody else happening in their life. But what happens is sin of someone else in their life is then them responding in a way that's godly and not sinful to that. And so you can't do, do anything about what has happened to them. What you can do is help this person respond in a way that is trusting, faithful of the Lord. And so that's what you want to, uh, to work on. Now, at, you might be able to see where this person's problem is caused by uh, their sin. And this is a, this is a bold statement to you know, be uh, making in a, a person's life. And you might necessarily not come out with, I wouldn't come out with, with all my ammunition in the first session. Because in the first session, you're not going to really know everything. But at least to be presenting the idea that a lot of times our struggle in a trial is, the re, is because of our own uh, sinfully responding to that trial. To present that, get that on the table. But then don't leave them there as that they're just a rat and a rat forever. You know, during this first session, the counselor should certainly let this be known, but concentrate on the fact that Christ has triumphed over all our sins and effects. He grants us forgiveness and, in D, uh, leads us toward repentance. There, 2 Corinthians 7.10. And we'll talk a lot about 2 Corinthians 7.10 throughout this uh, uh, exam here, but it'll be a key. Now, the second thing is you want to explain to them the goal of biblical counseling. Because what you're doing, uh, when you're biblical counseling, you're going to give the person uh, hope and you're going to give them uh, help to respond in a godly way. When most people come to biblical counseling is they want your help in changing the circumstances. All right? And you will feel most naturally inclined to help this person change their circumstance. It's, you know, from what the person says, they are married to a rotten spouse, and you will give them all kinds of ideas to change that rotten spouse when they go home. That is not your role. Your role is to give them hope that God knows this desperate situation that they are living in. He is with them when this rotten spouse says these ugly, untruth, mean, cutting things to them. 
And you want to help this person be able to respond in action and in heart in a way that is loving and how Christ would there. Not try and give this person all the right code words and things to say to get this spouse off their back and change. Okay? You see what I'm talking about there? So that's real key. I have to guard myself every, every time about that. So explain. Basically, you're explaining the answer to question one that we just talked about. And, uh, uh, you know, it's an abbreviated presentation to them through the uh, truth of Scripture. Three, another important need in the first session is to gather data. You know, we're going to think, all right, we've read the personal data inventory. We've sat with this person five minutes. We got it. We know exactly what their problem is, and we've got ten verses to help them, and we've got to figure it figured out. Uh, we most likely do not. Okay? Can, you will gather data till the very, very end. Uh, so you must uh, ask the Spirit to help you determine what the problem is, or, you know, why are they really, why are they really here? Okay? Uh, so now there is a, there's, a, there's a problem here, is that you can use the whole first session in gathering data. And you can just keep asking, bam, one question right after another, and you find out your hour, hour and a half is gone. Often your first session, you try and keep your sessions to 50 minutes and an hour at the most. Often your first session... It's it's good to because you're gathering data and doing a lot of things in this first session to let them know ahead of time. Uh, ask them if they have an hour and a half uh, to work with you. Okay. So even in the gathering of data and how important that is, remember you have other things to do also. Fourth, one essential need of the counselee must be addressed during even the initial session is they must get a sense that you love them that you care for them, that uh, you are there to help them. So they need that love, and you're going to have to be intentional uh, about it. Uh, and it could be uh, just uh, you know, thanking them for coming. I appreciate your openness during this time to let me be a part of your life. I really am looking forward to being used by God uh, to help you. Uh, it could be of, uh, you know, uh, shaking hands at the end, uh, giving them uh, an embrace, uh, you know, whatever it takes. But uh, make sure that you're demonstrating that love. Fifth, uh, one of the things that you want to get a sense is determine this counselee's kingdom residency. Are they kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light? Are they really... Uh, a believer. So here, uh, certainly for the full effect of biblical counseling to do its work, the person needs to be a kingdom person, kingdom of, of God. The truths from Scripture that God has given us, they're valid for the believer and also the unbeliever. You know, it says to love your neighbor. That's true for the unbeliever and for the believer. But biblical counseling is... You know, a changed godly life by the Holy Spirit. Well, the only people that have the Holy Spirit are those who are in the kingdom. So we want to, you know, we don't want to do all this work with this person if they're not a kingdom person. So uh, some people have time in that first session to really go after it, make a determination where they, whether they're in the kingdom or not and share the gospel, and really camp out there. I try and get a sense asking some questions about whether they're a kingdom person or not. One of the questions I ask is, tell me about your spiritual journey. And if there's nothing, it's amazing. If people have been, they tell me about their spiritual journey, and they never mention Jesus, or even God. They talk a lot about being in church, pastor said this thing. It really moved my heart. My husband walked down. I walked down also. Now, is this person a believer or not? You know, why did the husband go down? You know, uh, so try and at least start getting a sense whether this person is. 
I typically do not go hard on sharing the gospel again until about the fourth session myself. That's my choice. It seems to work for me well. By then, I have heard, gathered a lot of data about this person, and I have built a relationship with them. They think they're a believer, and I think that they've said enough to challenge that. So I have enough things to present to them. You know, to the, what about this? What about that? You said this. You know, you told me all about this problem you have, and you never made any indication about God being part of it or part of the solution. So I use a, often use a book for homework called Assurance of Salvation, little booklet by James McDonald. Very helpful. Have them read it, and uh, they may come in a little shaken up and uh, uh, help them out. All right, so that's uh, what that's about. Now, um, let's go on to six. Set the expectations. All right. This first session is sort of like the first time you, if you've taken, been to college, they, they hand out a syllabus and you're sitting there and you have syllabus shock. So you might need to shock them a little bit and uh, tell them. What you want to tell is that I need a learner's spirit. This is not a time where we're going to theologically argue about every verse I give you. I need you to please have a learner's spirit. If you don't understand something, let's talk about it. But if you have somebody, um, I remember a friend here at church, he was counseling someone from a Roman Catholic background. And every verse was a battle between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism as, a, as opposed to both are supposed to be accepting the word of God and totally was missing the main truth in the passage. So don't want that. So the other thing is you want to tell them, I'm going to ask you to do some homework. And uh, for you, you set the standard. Is the homework they're going to and be up front, that you anticipate that they'll, this will be two, three hours a week uh, that they're uh, going to do. Or you might have half an hour a day that they're going to work on. Whatever uh, you have for their homework and works best for you. Another thing in setting expectations is that they're, they're going to sometimes walk in with the expectation that you are going to be able to change their problem immediately. That you, somewhere in your bag of tricks, in your toolbox, you have this wiffle dust that you can sort of just sprinkle on them and everything will be just fine. Explain to them this is going to take some time. You did not get here overnight and the progress of sanctification does not happen overnight either. We all wish it did, but that's not the way God works. So be up front with them and tell them. Essential after that first session is to assign homework. Now, I joke with people. I call it uh, PFGs, that is Projects for Growth, but we all know it is homework. You know, homework sounds very junior high-ish, but uh, Project Ruth sounds more um, adult. But So set this pattern from the very beginning and uh, be very clear You know, at the end of the time. Go over the homework, exactly what you're asking to do, why you're asking to do it, and how you expect it to be done at the end. I tell my folks, I would like you to do A plus work on this homework. We're only going to be together uh, another thing under time here, and you'll see it in notes. I explained that we're probably going to be together at the most 13 to 15 sessions. So we're not going to be together that long. But during this intense time, please do not renovate your house. Do not do those kind of things. This is the time to focus on this issue. So uh, maybe some ideas. Uh, you might have already had a number of sessions yourself. You may have some better things that you have found very helpful to do in the first session. Write them down. Go for it. May the Spirit use them for you. Okay. All right. Hopefully that gives you a start into the counseling exam. Frame your questions. My suggestion would be, you know, on your piece of paper, real rough, uh, just write a, a main idea, uh, three main ideas that you want to talk about. Get those ideas out there, and then underneath, 
write three sub-ideas under each one, then start writing the sentences. If you just start writing and just spilling out, you'll have everything running on top of each other. Make time, build a, you know, your main idea, build a good topic sentence for your paragraph, and then illuminate that with three sub-items uh, underneath. And certainly you'll end up, you might end up only with two, five, uh, by times done, but you know, that's a good way to get started and to fill in as you go. So I'll be around, but, uh, and you're welcome to stay uh, to work on it, or uh, you're adults, you're certainly free to go home and to do whatever God has called you to do. So have a good evening, and uh, we'll go at it hard tomorrow, so please get a lot of rest, and uh, uh, we'll be together at 8 o'clock. See you then.